Good morning, and before we get started, I'd like to thank the session and David for inviting me to preach here today. It's my pleasure to bring God's word to you, and as we do every Sunday, our desire is to be encouraged from God's word, to hear what God has to say to us through his word, and indeed to conform us more to the image of his son. Hebrews chapter 12, uh, you could say is the apex of Hebrews. Hebrews is written written to a group of Hebrew Christians who are distracted by their heritage. They have placed their trust in Moses or the angels or their heritage as the people of King David. And the writer of Hebrews is clear to tell them, in fact, he opens his book saying that Jesus is better than Moses. He's better than the angels, and in fact, he's better than King David, because even King David worshipped the Lord Jesus. And so by the time we get to Hebrews chapter 12, uh, the punchline is upon us. And so let me read for us Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 29. This is God's word. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens." This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you through the mediatorial shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We come as those who offer but filthy rags before your holiness. Even our desires and our attempts at righteousness are weak and miserable. And Lord, we come as those who come confidently, even as this same text tells us, that we should come boldly 
before your, gro- your throne of grace with confidence, not because we have confidence in ourself or our ability to justify ourselves, but because our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, has gone before us and offered his sacrifice once for all. So in that name we come asking that you would bless your word, that you would change us from the inside out and conform us more to our Lord and Master, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. The end of our text says that we ought to be grateful for a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And I don't know about you, but you look around this world right now and it feels like a whole lot of stuff is shaking. We've lost confidence in our leaders, uh, even sometimes within the church, within our schools, our government, our families are wrecked and the, the earth is just shaking all around us. And this writer wants to tell us that we ought to be thankful because the kingdom that we're a part of is a kingdom that cannot and will not be shaken. You see, what the writer of Hebrews is doing is he's telling these Hebrew Christians that the things in which they have placed their trust are things that cannot serve them that they should not place their trust in because, as the writer says, the things in which they've placed their trust are passing away. He tells us three things when he compares, in this text, Mount Sinai with Mount Zion. He tells us that Sinai was earthly, but heaven, or Mount Zion, or what he calls the heavenly Jerusalem, was spiritual. So he contrasts the earthly Sinai with the heavenly Jerusalem. He also says that the Sinai in which they're placing their trust is terrifying. And yet he contrasts that with the glory of heaven. The earthly Sinai is terrifying. The heavenly Jerusalem is glorious. And finally, he talks about Sinai as being part of an old covenant that has been replaced with a new or a better covenant. Sinai was the old and Zion is the new. So let us take those in turn. First, the writer tells us that Sinai was earthly. Now, a little bit of background. Remember, this is the story of Moses going to up to Sinai and receiving the law and the picture that's painted in Exodus, is not a nice, pretty picture. It's a picture of terrifying gloom as Moses approaches the mountain. In fact, this writer reminds us, he tells these Hebrew Christians that they have not come to that type of mountain like Moses has. And he describes what that mountain was. He says, you've not come to what may be touched, what may be touched, earthly, what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet who's made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken. Do you remember when Moses went up on the mountain? The people were so terrified that they told Moses, Moses, you go for us. We can't handle what we're seeing. You have to go before us and represent us before God because we are too scared and we fear so much 
the glory and holiness of God, and we know that we cannot stand in his presence. So Moses, you go for us. And there's this picture of this trumpet sounding on top of Mount Sinai where the hearers are clapping their hands over their ears, as it were, and saying, I don't want to hear any more from this God. This terrifying, holy God who in fact has now given us his law and any of us who are at all in touch with our own depravity realize that in the giving of the law what we see is not a hopeful thing apart from Christ. What we see is a mirror, James tells us, that we hold up to ourselves and we know that apart from a Savior we're condemned. And so it's no wonder that those hearers would say, I don't want to hear any more about this holy God. Sinai was earthly. And then heaven, however, is spiritual. Look to what the writer says. He contrasts this this mountain that can be touched with the heavenly Jerusalem. He says, verse 22, but you, that is you Christians, we who are in Christ, you have come to Mount Zion and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gatherings. So what this writer is doing is making a contrast. He says, listen, Hebrew Christians, do you want to trust in that mountain that can be shaken? Do you want to trust in where um, you are afraid to even hear of the holiness of God? Or do you want to trust in the heavenly Jerusalem, which far from being terrifying is described like this. It's angels in festal gathering. So contrast in your mind's eye people not wanting to hear any more of God, with angels celebrating in festal gathering. That word festal, we get the word festivity, festive, fiesta. It's a celebration of all that is glorious in the heavenly realm. You see, Sinai was earthly, and to put our trust in earthly things is folly. And this writer wants us to lift our eyes to the heavenly Jerusalem, the true spiritual Jerusalem. We've made mention, but we'll say it again, that Sinai was terrifying. It was not a place you wanted to be. Now imagine this. Look what he says in verse 20. For they could not endure. This is the people at the mountain could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Such is the holiness of God that if an ox wanders up the trail on Mount Sinai and happens to slip and hit the mountain, the people were commanded to put it to death. Now, how much more so people who willfully disobey and run away from God and his righteousness. If even a beast is supposed to be stoned, what about a man who's inclined in every way to raise his fist up at God? Surely his torment would be much greater. Sinai was terrifying, yet Zion is glorious. Let's look at this glorious picture We talked about the angels being 
arrayed in festal gathering. Verse 22 tells us that we've come to Mount Zion and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. And listen to this, verse 23, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. That's the type of mountain I want to live on. Where we're not afraid to praise God along with the angels. And we're gathered with our brothers and sisters in celebration of this living God. Enrolled in heaven. Along with the firstborn who have gone before us. Sinai was terrifying. Zion is glorious. This glory goes on to be described as not only the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Again, our brothers and sisters that have gone on before us in verse 24, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And this is where the writer tells us that there's something much different about Sinai and the new heavenly Jerusalem. He contrasts the old covenant with the new covenant. Now, it's interesting that the the words that this writer chooses, he says that in verse 24, that Jesus is the mediator. And for the original hearers, they think, wait, I thought Moses was the mediator. He's the one that we sent up onto the mountain for us. Moses is the one who stands between us and God. And this writer says, no, 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 no. Jesus is your mediator. You see, but he's a mediator, not of the old covenant. See, the old covenant said, if you obey me, you will live. If you disobey me, you will die. That's the old covenant. And of course, like we said, every person who has been honest about themselves and their state of sin realizes that if they're held to the standard of the old covenant, then they're just like the oxen who touches its horn upon the mountain. It ought to be stoned because it is offended and disobeyed a holy God. That's what it is to be part of the old covenant. Now this writer, remember, he's trying to draw these Hebrews, these Hebrew Christians, and us away from putting our trust in things that are earthly or things that are part of the old covenant and look to Jesus. And he describes Jesus as the mediator of a new covenant. And then he says this interesting phrase. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And that phrase just seems to kind of leap out of nowhere. Okay, I get it that there's Mount Sinai and then there's Mount Zion in heaven and that it was a really terrifying thing to be at Sinai, but it's a glorious, festive celebration in heaven and that Jesus is a mediator way better than Moses. But then when he describes the covenant that he's mediating, he says that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant And he says, we have been brought in front of God 
with the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Well, what do we know about the blood of Abel? If you remember, Cain kills his brother Abel, and the way Genesis describes what's happening is that God's looking for Abel. And he tells Cain, he says, Cain, where is your brother? And, you know, Cain kind of gives that look, I'm sure. And God says, no, his blood is crying out from the ground. What have you done? You see, Abel's blood cried out for vengeance. Abel's blood cried out for things to be made right. If Cain was allowed to take his life, Abel's calling out to God, as it were, through his blood to say, make it right, O God, and put him away. But this writer says that Jesus' blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. If Abel's blood spoke for vengeance and for things to be set right in an earthly sense, then how does Jesus' blood speak? Because that, after all, is who we're talking about. Jesus, the mediator of this covenant, who with his blood is speaking a better word than the blood of Abel. Well, let's think about it. If you and I, you see in this picture, we're not Abel. We're not the ones crying out for vengeance. We're Cain. We're the ones who have offended God. And so, I don't want the blood of Abel, which cries out for things to be made right, for me to deserve, to get everything that I deserve for my sin. I don't want that, and neither should you. What I want and what I need is something that speaks better than just getting things right or setting them uh, uh, anew, as it were. Because even if we somehow could atone for our sins of the day, aren't we lost the very next day when we sin? You see, what we need is blood that speaks better than just setting things momentarily right, as if God has this magic reset button over our sin or, or Better put, that we have that magic reset button and somehow we can be made right and just move on our lives. And you and I both know the moment we step forward, we sin again. So what we need is blood that speaks a different word. You see, Jesus' blood, Jesus' blood speaks for mercy. The blood of Jesus we're told in Romans chapter 5 that God is both the just, he's both just, payment for sin is had, and he's the justifier of the one that has faith in Jesus. You see, the blood of Jesus, yes, it sets things right, but it sets things right in a way that you and I, as sinful man, cannot do. Even if we were to atone for our own sins, again, like we said, we, we couldn't hit the reset button and place any, place any hope in that. What we need is somebody who has atoned for us once and for all. And that's what Hebrews tells us. 
is that Jesus, our great high priest, not only has gone into the heavenly Jerusalem and offered a sacrifice, but he offered a sacrifice of himself so that that one sacrifice would endure for all. You see, in Christ, we receive blood that speaks out for mercy. And says, I will place my wrath, God says, upon my son, the one who has atoned perfectly as the God-man for all sin, for all who have put their faith in him. And I will pass over Ken, and I'll pass over Bob and Sue and whomever if they put faith in that one sacrifice. Jesus, through his blood, speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What do we do with this, brothers and sisters? If the truth is, we, just like these Hebrew Christians, have been brought before God with this massive question of, where are you placing your hope? Do you place your hope in something that's spiritual and terrifying and and speaks out for vengeance? Or do you place your hope in the heavenly Jerusalem where the celebration of God's righteousness is done in all holiness and you're enrolled along with all those who have placed their hope in Christ? Well, the writer gives us a few very specific points of application. Look in verse 25. After describing this kingdom that cannot be shaken, he says this, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Who's speaking? The one whose blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. He's speaking. Don't refuse him is what this writer is telling us. Don't put your hope in the blood of Abel. Don't put your hope in the performance art of Sinai. Put your hope in Christ, the mediator of a new covenant. And he says this at the end of verse 25, for if they, that is the, the, uh, those Jews that were gathered around Sinai to receive the law, if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. It's almost like the writer saying, listen, God warned them. He warned them about what sin required. And these are the same people who put their hands over their ears and said, I don't want to hear it. I can't handle it. And he says, if they didn't escape, when they neglected God's warning from heaven, and remember the pictures, there's thunderous roar, there's a trumpet sounding, there's gloom over the mountain. It's like they could see that something special was going on on Mount Sinai. If they missed it, And it was so obvious. And this writer's telling us, much more will we miss it if God himself is warning us from heaven, from this festal gathering, as it were, to say, come, be reconciled to Christ. Be reconciled to me in Christ. Receive his blood. Be part of the new covenant. That is what God is saying to us through his word. And he's warning us and inviting us 
We need not be like the the Jews who turned away from God's warning and placed their hope in themselves, but we place our hope in the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we shouldn't reject him. So we shouldn't refuse him in the first part of chapter, of verse 25. And we shouldn't, if we refuse him, then we're rejecting him. We ought not reject him. And then he says this in verse 28. He says, Therefore, let us be grateful. All by itself, that's kind of hard. Let us be grateful. Let us be grateful for a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Remember, we started talking about how our world all around us seems to be shaking. It's quite disconcerting to live in this day, especially just in our recent history, having seen things change so much. And uh, if you're like me and my family, it's, it's, it's shaken the foundations a bit. Let's be honest. And what we need to do is not place our hope in things that are earthly, whether it's our ability to get things right, or uh, we could go on and on and on. Let us place our hope in something that will not and cannot be shaken anymore. Our heavenly Zion. So we don't refuse him or reject him, and we need to be grateful to be part of this kingdom. And what does that gratefulness look like? I think what it looks like is that we live as citizens of the heavenly Zion. We live as people that are grateful that our sin has been forgiven. And we actually live our lives in such a way that proclaims the gospel of Christ as humble people whose sins have been taken away by God and who want that message to be heard by other people. We're grateful that we're part of this kingdom. And so we want everybody else to be part of that kingdom, don't we? We ought to be grateful. And then finally, verse 29 says, Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. You see, for this writer to offer to God acceptable worship is to do the things he's just told us. To not refuse God and not refuse the gospel, but to invite the gospel into our hearts and to be grateful for that gospel. And as we're grateful for that gospel, our hearts are inclined to worship. Can you imagine the contrast he's painting here again with Sinai, where the people had to stop their ears and didn't want to have anything else to do with this holy God? And what we're to live like as those who say, oh, you, you've got to know about this Jesus. Brother, do you realize that you and I are lost in sin And yet, through God's gracious provision of his son, we can be reconciled to God, and instead of being afraid of God, we can call him our heavenly father. We can come before God as those who are received among the firstborn. I love how one of our brothers described Jesus as our elder brother. That's exactly right. And the word tells us that because he's our elder brother, we receive all of the benefits that he has in his sonship. 
we are seen like Jesus by God the Father. We are clothed in his righteousness. Our elder brother has indeed gone before us and secured our place in heaven. So let us not refuse him. Let us be grateful and offer acceptable worship to God. Because in the end, our God is a consuming fire. Because you see, what this writer is saying is ultimately, it's only going to shake one more time. God shook the earth at Mount Sinai, and the writer tells us, it's going to shake once more. And when it shakes, those who are going to remain are those who are part of a kingdom that won't be shaken. And so, brothers and sisters, you and I, let's take our hope off of the things that we see and lift our eyes to heaven, to the heavenly Jerusalem, as it were, and look forward to that day when that kingdom that cannot be shaken is realized in full. Let us pray. Oh God, our consuming fire, how, how we sympathize with David who wrote, Oh God, if you were to account, if you were to count iniquity, which of us could stand? Lord, we are thankful that in your wisdom and your glory, in your desire to glorify and magnify your righteousness, your holiness, and your mercy that you provided your one and only Son as a sacrifice for our sin. Our desire, O Lord, is to place our hope not in this kingdom of this world, but in his kingdom where he reigns. And we ask, O Lord, that you, by the power of your Spirit, would work in our hearts to to help us to take up that citizenship that we currently have and live it out even in this dark world. We pray this for the glory of Christ, in his name, amen.